The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Guardian Australia's new podcast, Australian Politics Weekly. I'm Catherine Murphy, Deputy Political Editor, and it's really great to have your company. In the run-up to September 7, this podcast will be dissecting the key developments. The highs, the lows, the gaffes and the killer punches. Joining me will be some of the best political minds. And stay with us because later in this episode, veteran political commentator, blogger and curator Paula Mathewson will join me to discuss online election commentary and a whole lot more. But first... I'm joined now by Guardian Australia's political editor, Lenore Taylor. Thanks for being here. It's very nice to be here, Catherine. Firstly, I need to pretend that I don't know how you're going with this election campaign, given that we sit cheek by jowl. How are you going? I think it'd be a better question to ask you, Catherine, since you're live blogging the whole thing. (laughs) For me, well, I still know what day it is and that's got to be a good sign. Well, that's progress. Let's start today. Uh, We had some new economic figures, the pre-election fiscal outlook released by Treasury and Finance. What's your take on the numbers and what do they mean for Labor and the Coalition? Well, they shouldn't mean a lot, really, because we're only 10 days away from when the government released its last economic statement and the numbers were pretty much identical. So you'd think that would be more or less a non-story. But the Coalition has been saying that they don't believe the government's economic numbers. They think that the government has been sort of leaning on the Treasury, if you like, to change assumptions and make the budget bottom line look better than it actually is. And these figures are independent. They come independently from the departments of Treasury and Finance. And so they really should be the believable set of numbers in an election campaign. That's what they're designed to be. Because they came out pretty much the same as the last set of numbers, that is, I guess, a good thing for Labor in that they can now ramp up their attack on the coalition to release their costings. And it leaves the coalition in a fairly difficult position because they've really got two choices now if they accept these numbers. They've made a whole lot of promises to cut taxes and various spending promises. So they need to either say where they're going to cut spending a lot to come in with a bigger budget bottom line, a better budget bottom line than Labor, or else they're going to have to admit that they will preside over deficits for the next little while. And they've spent the last term of government sort of really suggesting that deficits and debt are a sign of Labor's incompetence and are entirely avoidable things. So that's the sort of broad political conundrum of these numbers and why an otherwise unexceptional set of numbers is actually interesting. Yeah, it is funny that PFO has sort of been such an inflection point in this campaign. I don't really recall that being the case in any previous campaigns that we've covered. So that is interesting. How do you rate the economic debate in the campaign? For me, I think it's one of those scenarios where nobody's talking about what matters and there's a whole kind of fluff about what doesn't matter. What's your view? I absolutely agree with you. I think that there is a real discussion that needs to happen. These figures show the budget returning to surplus. It shows revenue picking up over time government spending coming down a bit. But after that, in the medium term, there's a bunch of spending that hits our budget on disability care, on education. And we know for sure that the the investment phase, the really big phase of the commodity boom is tapering off. And neither side is really telling us what they're going to do about it. There is what they call a structural deficit in the longer term in the budget. And it isn't clear how either side will address it. Kevin Rudd has a something point plan to increase productivity. <laughs> I think it's seven. Well it had I think it had more points than it had pages actually. <laughs> 
like the coalition is not telling us exactly what they're going to do other than that they're going to cut taxes and that should increase growth. Now, they're sort of the, that's the traditional sort of ideological divide, if you like, on economics between the two major parties. But in neither case does it actually tell us clearly and in detail how the major parties intend to address this medium-term problem. So there's this short-term problem for the coalition, but in the medium term, I think there are big questions over what both parties are telling us. Which is the perfect segue for a sort of information-free zone. Let's go back to Sunday night's election debate. I think officially an information-free zone, death by talking points, bit of a yawn fest. I think you called it lacklustre. Why do you reckon it was so dull? I think the format was really terrible. The two uh, candidates for Prime Minister weren't even looking at each other. They were each standing at a lectern in a room which was completely silent. They were getting questions and there was the opportunity to ask some follow-up questions and the journalists did do that. But they didn't really get to ask questions of each other that they were forced to answer. So there was there was none of that genuine from the heart explanation of a program. There was plenty of from the heart. The focus groups are obviously telling them that, <laughs> from we, the talking that we really <laughs> want to hear positive messages. So they were very, very positive about telling us what a great country it is and how we're all incredibly terrific, every single solitary last one of us. We are a great country. This country of ours, Australia, is one of the best countries in the world. But in terms of actually being forced to say something, explain something, tell us something beyond the talking points, it really didn't cut it. Yeah, no, it was a shocker. I wonder if the People's Forum, so-called, because, as you know, we've had this constant exchange of uh, letters between... The debate about debates. Well, the debate about the debate, the old campaign standard. I wonder if we get a People's Forum, which is Tony Abbott's desire next week in Brisbane, whether that will improve things. What do you think? I would actually hold out higher hopes for the preferred format that Labor is pushing, which is to be held on one of the commercial television stations, but with a lot of the questions coming from social media. I think that's more likely to throw up left field questions than the People's Forum structure. Both of those formats, if you like, though, are probably less likely to put the candidates on the spot. I'm not suggesting that the questions that come from the people in the People's Forum or the social media questioners are going to be bad questions, but they don't really have the opportunity to ask follow-ups or pin them down. You know, those forums aren't set up to do that. So, you know, we'll see. And and it's not at this point entirely clear which one of those formats is going to happen, if any. Well, the barrage of uh, letters of non-note go on between the campaign secretaries. Now, I've been slightly unfair about Sunday night's debate because, of course, there was actually a news point in it. Kevin Rudd had a little shazam on Sunday night in relation to uh, gay marriage. Now, uh, let's go back and listen to what the candidates had to say. Here's Tony Abbott. As far as a incoming coalition government is concerned, the priority will be on things like reducing cost of living pressure okay, and w- increasing w- job security. Would you security. allow a conscience vote? We had a vote in the national parliament about a year ago. It was fairly decisive against same-sex marriage. My commitment to you is that within the first 100 days of a re-elected government, a bill would come forth to legalise marriage equality. We would, of course, on our side of politics, allow a full conscience vote. And I would just appeal to Mr Abbott to do the same, because folk out there want this to happen. Well, it was a big social media moment and I think it was a reasonably significant campaign moment. 
Now, Lenore, what do you reckon it means, though, for Kevin Rudd and for Tony Abbott in this campaign? Well, in terms of the campaign, I think it was quite a positive moment for Kevin Rudd. It is a point of differentiation. It sort of wedges Tony Abbott in that he can't really change his view at this point. In terms of actual political import, it probably doesn't mean all that much. We already knew that Kevin Rudd had changed his views on this a couple of weeks before he returned to the Labor leadership. Labor already gave its MPs a conscience vote. And in fact, even if Tony Abbott changes his mind and gives the coalition MPs a conscience vote or Liberal MPs a conscience vote, we don't know for sure that the bill would pass because there are divided opinions about this issue on both sides of politics. So in terms of what it actually means for the issue of same-sex marriage, it's not clear. What it means for the campaign is that Kevin Rudd has something that he can drive through social media. He had a social media campaign ready to go at the time of the debate. It's an issue that he's really pushing out through sort of younger people who are very strongly pro-same-sex marriage and it makes him look like the person who's sort of forward-moving and has a new way, dare I say it. new way. Dear, oh dear, we should be Mm. a new way zone. But anyway, that's all good. What do you think just on the broader politics of this issue? Because I realise that it plays well with young people. I know there's a lot of polls around that suggest that everybody's all very comfortable with gay marriage now. But uh, can we take Tony Abbott's attitude as a barometer of something in relation to this issue? He's certainly not sounding all that thrilled about the conscience vote. And we know there's lots of people in the coalition party room who would actually push him for one. So why is he why is he hesitating, do you reckon? I think it's a barometer of feelings inside the coalition party room where there are people who are opposed to same-sex marriage quite vehemently. I think out in the electorate, even among those people who don't like the idea or would not say that they supported it. It's not a vote-changing issue. It's not for... There's only a small cohort of people for whom this is a really, really important issue. But within the coalition party room, there are people who hold very strong views about this. They're sort of from Tony Abbott's traditional support base inside the coalition party room, and for that reason, it's a particularly difficult issue for him to manage internally. Tricky issue, yeah. Now, polls... We've got to go there. Mm, there's lots of them. Every day, every hour, every moment. Let's step back. When we started the campaign, the party seemed to be more or less 50-50. Now Labor has dropped a couple of points. Is the Rudd honeymoon over? I think it's a bit early to say that, but there would appear to be a slight drift away from Labor. It's within the margin of error for most of the polls, but it's consistent across the polls. They've all got on two-party preferred uh, basis, Liberals ahead, 51, 49, 52, 48, depending on which poll that you look at. More important probably is the fact that Kevin Rudd's personal ratings and preferred Prime Minister ratings, which was, of course, his big asset, that was the whole reason Labor put him back into the job, are also slipping. Again, he's still ahead of Tony Abbott, but the gap is narrowing, which suggests that the momentum in the campaign is going the coalition's way. Now, a gap of that size in the published polls isn't unbridgeable. It doesn't mean that Labor's not in the race. You know, they're still in with a shot, but you'd have to say that they really need a bit of momentum at this point to, to lift their polling. The big mo. The big mo, as Josh Lyman would have said. This is Australian Politics Weekly for Guardian Australia and I'm Catherine Murphy. I've been speaking with Lenore Taylor, who's going to, I think, stick around. Lenore? 
With us right now is someone who's been covering politics for over 30 years, Tip Mahat. Paula Mathewson is a professional writer who, amongst other things, curates a weekly collection of quality political writing at No Crap App. I do. <laughs> She's also the editor of the election group blog, Ozvotes 2013. Paula, great to have you on Australian Politics Weekly. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'd like to get your take on mainstream media coverage of election 2013 and the coverage by bloggers and citizen journalists. In some ways, there's a whole other election coverage going on. But before we get to that, I have to ask. People uh, often forget that journalists are people who vote and who have political preferences. But I gather you don't vote. What's no, that about? I, no, I don't vote. Uh, it's, I think there's about four or five elections now in which I haven't voted. I did it for a couple of reasons. The, the initial time was because I really felt that I didn't have a choice. And so I was a bit naughty and decided not to vote at all. But since then, having got involved more in the blogosphere and online and having to carry the burden of being a former Liberal staffer <laughs> and constantly have that thrown at me, despite the fact that I haven't worked for the Liberal Party for over 20 years, I thought it was easier to just say, I don't support any party, which I don't. And the proof of it is that I don't vote. So, so do you spoil your paper or do you I don't pay even the go. fine? I pay the fine. Well, I was going to say, it's sort mm -hmm. of like a flouting the law, which, of course, we don't uh, support no, on no. this and, podcast and... or endorse in any shape or form. <laughs> but you're like the Australian Jim Lehrer because if I understand your argument correctly, it's sort of like a conflict of interest position that you've adopted there. So it's kind of like you want to be genuinely neutral. Is that right? That's correct. Mm. And I guess I based that on a view that I had when I did start writing as a political commentator, that one needed to be as independent and as objective as possible. Interesting thing is that having taken that stance in deciding not to vote, I've learned that it's almost impossible for working journalists, for example, to be totally independent and unbiased when they write about politics. And I've become a lot more comfortable with that, but I've decided still that, I'm, that I don't support anybody and I don't vote. It's a, well, it's a whole other podcast, really, uh, of the, the veil of objectivity, but there might be something Indeed. we come back to. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your take. Uh, we've had uh, some coverage of uh, Kevin Rudd bringing out people from President Obama's digital team to assist during this campaign. Talk to me about online. Why does it matter? Why, why do political parties, why are they so into it at the present time? I think partly because it's a fad. I'm not sure that uh, it necessarily mobilises the sort of votes that people think that it really does. But it's a place for politically engaged people to congregate and talk. And I guess the theory is that they then go and talk to the people in their families and their social groups who aren't politically engaged and so you have that ripple effect. Mm. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I must say from doing a live blog myself and being a social media person, it does seem to, uh, there seems to be a natural congregation point for politics tragics in the sort of online world. But your point's interesting that it's not necessarily a, a deep audience. It's an audience, but it's not necessarily a deep audience. Why do you think, though, blogging as a medium and politics, why is there such an intersection, do you think? Why is it the politics tragics hang out, the blog? <laughs> well, I think it goes back to uh, the, the reference that you made before about how the mainstream media conducts itself during election campaigns and how uh, uh, people in new media or social media have decided to uh, prop themselves up on the higher moral ground and say that they can do it better. 
So uh, it's an opportunity for them to uh, to basically demonstrate the ways in which they think they can do it better. Well, it's interesting because obviously private bloggers like yourself and, and others, uh, bloggers that are not attached to mainstream media companies, obviously don't have to adhere to professional codes of ethics or, well, not, not at this stage anyway. I know there's an industry conversation about this, which is quite interesting. But without that sort of systemic background, how is their style emerging, do you think? Is it, is it a sort of unique style for political bloggers or is it, is it the same as if I blogged about my children, say? Oh, look, you know, the world of blogging is huge and I guess you know, you're, you're talking specifically about political blogging and that has a, a wide diversion of, of approaches as well. Like you say, there's been a, a discussion and um, the MEAA, the, the, the Journalist Union, has uh, set up an interesting system for freelancers and bloggers. And so those of us that have signed up have basically committed to the code of conduct that uh, the journalists also are obligated to uphold. But there's plenty of blogs that uh, wouldn't want to do that because they're pretty much advocates. They're running one side of the argument and they wouldn't want to have such a thing as a code of ethics stopping them from pursuing the things that they are. Or those sorts of um, veils of objectivity, so-called. <laughs> Indeed, although I'm sure that some of them don't even really bother to have a veil of objectivity. Well, yes, and perhaps that's the point and perhaps that's why so many people read. Now, I, I hate the bloggers versus MSM debate, Paula, as you know, because yes. we, you and I have had this debate over a period of time and I think it's a completely false dichotomy uh, and I think there's, if I may be so bold, a lot of posturing in this debate. What's your view? Oh, look, I, I agree and I think it's something that uh, it's partly a relic of how the dialogue started at the last federal election where there were the complaints made by certain elements in the blogosphere about the fact that uh, the media was not focused on policy. And so the, the us and them thing started from, from there and it, I mean, it, it resulted in Grog's gamut, Greg Jericho actually being outed by the Australian in, in an act of retaliation, I believe. So there's been this toing and froing going on to the extent that if I have a conversation with you on Twitter or say something nice about something that Lenore's written or Lee Sales, I get called a media apologist or that I'm you know, <laughs> sucking up to the MSM. The worst sin. Oh, I know, I know. It's terrible. You know, former Liberal staffer and a media apologist. I'm not quite sure what else I could do wrong. But um, it's. I think one of the things about Guardian coming to Australia is that it's demonstrated that you can have this really strong relationship with the blogosphere in, in a way that's, dare I say, you know, more productive. And so you can lean on each other's strengths and, and borrow from each other. And I think that's that's being shown more and more, but not as much as it probably should be. Oh, I think there's a way to go. Lenore, what's your view about this uh, bloggers versus the, the MSM uh, Divide. I think it's the most boring debate that we've had for many years and it just annoys me more than I can possibly tell you. There's a lot of blogs that I read regularly and I find informative and creative and excellent and there's a lot of blogs that I find complete trash. But I could say the same thing about newspapers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair cop all round. Now, do you think uh, that there's been a sort of deliberate or unconscious balancing, Paula? There's been a lot of debate, obviously, in this campaign about uh, news corporations' coverage and bias or whatever. There's a sort of conservative-centred debate on the ABC and whether it's a sort of 
collection of uh, of uh, Marxists or whatever else. Do you think some bloggers are motivated by some sort of correctional impulse to Absolutely. sort of... Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. talk about that. That's interesting. Um, it goes to uh, the, the thing that we decided we wouldn't talk about at the moment, which is, you know, media bias or, you know, how, how you can and can't have it in, journal, in professional journalism. There's a view that objectivity is actually a media organisation running your side's line. That's what objectivity apparently is these days. And if so if they're not running that line, then it's entirely appropriate for you to run the other line. Yeah. So we have the anti-Murdoch forces on, uh, on Twitter and throughout the blogosphere who feel that they are absolutely entitled to run the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, and, uh, and, and that is that basically somehow adds up to total objectivity or a, you know a zero-sum game, which... You know, it's obviously ridiculous. It's well, just bias in the other direction. Well, it's kind of this rolling cheer squad mentality for one side or the other and the kind of centre just drops out of the whole equation mm, that it's mm. okay to run your line for one side or another anyway. That's very, uh, and again, a whole other podcast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just thinking in preparing for this, how many blog, political blogs are there that sit in the centre? And there are so very few. Hmm. Interesting, and, uh, and I think you know it's that that is that illustrates something, and I think those that are there are popular for that very reason. Hmm. No, it's really really interesting thought. Um, now you wrote a piece for the Drum on Monday about the election debate and mm-hmm. about your response to that being in the eye of the beholder. What a, what a stunning notion! Um, <laughs> talk to me about that. Uh, well, I I did this really interesting experiment. I was asked to write the thing, obviously, before the, the debate. So I turned off Twitter. I only watched a clean feed on uh, one of the television stations. You that, were a worm-free that, zone. That I was a worm-free zone, sat down and wrote the thing and then found out what everybody else thought about it. So it was quite astounding that having come to the conclusion that, you know, it pretty much would be, you know, depending on who you barracked for, that would be the person who won, to then go on to Twitter and find out that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and I thought, well, there you go. Because when I, so often when I write pieces, they're a bit of a magical mystery tour. I don't even really know where I'm going to end up until I get there. And that was pretty much what happened with But it's piece. interesting, this, the, the, the centre, it's no longer the centre, it's sort of the eye of the behind holder in a way that's sort of uh, this kind of frame of reference, perhaps ever thus, but it's, it's, it was just an interesting piece. Mm. That well, it goes again to, you know, objectivity is in, in the eye of the beholder too. If, uh, no, if, you, if you're rooting for my side, then you are objective. The Guardian. You're listening to Australian Politics Weekly. And before we go, it's time for our very favourite segment, Gaff watch. <laughs> Only one week in, we've had some corkers. Ladies. That's an unfortunate choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just actually thinking about a hashtag and how I could walk that back. <laughs> anyway, let's stick with corkers for the moment. Uh, ladies, uh, I need to know from each of you your gaff of the week, although I suspect I know what you're going to say, Lenore. 
Well, by far the funniest one was the one for which Corkers is a particularly unfortunate reference, and that is Tony Abbott mixing up repository and suppository cue bum jokes all around the world. Sorry, it was just campaign gold. I know we are serious in this room, but it really was campaign gold. Paula, your view? I'm going to pick on Tony Abbott as well, uh, unfortunately. You're going to for say him, sexy back, I'm aren't going you? to say sexy, yes. And, it's, and, and yes, I'm just sorry. Explain, just I'm explain sorry to the you. listeners what are you talking about, Paula? What's, what, what was sexy? Tony Abbott, in uh, introducing or speaking about the uh, candidate for Lindsay. If you missed it, here it is. They're young, uh, they're um, feisty. Uh, I think I can probably say have a bit of sex appeal. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they're just very, very connected with the local area. She had a bit of sex appeal. Just such an unfortunate thing to say. And to to figure out how many female voters might think about that, or voters in general, really, you only had to look at the reaction of his own daughter standing behind him who couldn't (laughs) help but kind of roll her eyes and do a kind of oh, dad face. Well, it's sort of like the dad joke. Again, another sort of rolling um, sort of campaign meme really has been the dad joke. But if you're Tony Abbott... Why are you doing sexy? Well, indeed, and Twitter just had a total meltdown. I mean, even I did, and I tried to stay away from the outrage bandwagons, but uh, that one just did it for me. It just, uh, you talk about, talk about common sense in an election <laughs> campaign, and it is common sense not to say something that sexualises one of the candidates, yeah. for goodness sake. Mind sakes. you, it was probably also common sense for the Assistant Treasurer, David Bradbury, not to ring Smooth FM and be decidedly unsmooth when he was asked perfectly reasonable questions about their lines on int- on Labor's lines on interest rates. In fact, rough, the opposite <laughs> of smooth. But anyway, we'll wrap on that note. Uh, it's all we've got time for, sadly, this week. Many thanks to Paula Mathewson from No Crap App and Ozvote <laughs> 2013. Uh, hold the suppositories. Uh, and you can follow Paula on Twitter at her handle Dragonista. And also Lenore Taylor, my friend and political editor for Guardian Australia. Uh, If you're a Twitter person, you can follow her on Twitter at Lenore Taylor. You've been listening to Australian Politics Weekly from Guardian Australia. Our producer, lovely man that he is, Mike Williams. I'm Catherine Murphy. And speaking of blogging, you can follow my daily live politics blog on Guardian Australia. And if you're a Twitter person, you can follow me on Twitter at Murfaroo. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. The Guardian.